0: to Acts chapter 19. We're going to continue through our uh, series through the book of Acts. We really, uh, you know, we're going to be taking a break here in a little bit. We're going to have to revisit Acts in order to finish it up, and we'll probably do that sometime next year. Uh, Here we are in Acts chapter 19, and I'm actually going to be looking at the entire chapter. We're not going to be reading this passage. Um, However, there are three really big scenes, so I'm actually going to be reading all of the verses, just not all at one time, um, Acts chapter 19, listen, Acts chapter 19 may be one of these passages that you had no idea was in the Bible, If oh, I want to poll you so bad, but you'll judge each other, you will, I was going to say, how many people have read Acts 19, raise your hand, you'd feel so proud of yourself though, and we just I'd have to preach a different sermon, like I would, I would just have to do that, but Acts 19 is pro- and, and maybe it'll take me reading it to you, because maybe you're familiar with some of the headings. Like, yeah, I feel like I've seen that before or heard of that. Acts 19 is a ride. It, it is absolutely wild. And listen, if you struggle with the fact that our primary mode of preaching is walking through Bible books verse by verse... Today should be encouraging to you because I promise you if we were not preaching through the book of Acts verse by verse I would never preach Acts chapter 19. I wouldn't do it if, if I had all I mean all the stuff we have in the Bible Listen, I'd preach Psalm 23 15 times before I would preach Acts 19 once um, Acts 19 is strange. It's really cool to read, but once you get to the end of it, you're like Wow, that was crazy. Why does this matter for me at all? You know, and I wrestled with that all week What we see in Acts chapter 19 is Paul back on mission. He's on his third missionary journey, his third and final missionary journey, and he has finally made his way to Ephesus, the grand city of Ephesus. And yes, this is the city where he ends up writing a letter that we have in our New Testament, the book of Ephesians. He writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. This is the city of Ephesus. And what we see in Acts 19, Luke records this for us, how the gospel came to Ephesus. And what we essentially see here is what happens when the gospel takes root in any given place. So when the gospel took root in the city of Ephesus, three things happened. Those three things should be present in any place where the gospel has taken root, including our church. Now, the city of Ephesus, it was a vibrant city. It was the richest city In the richest region in the entire Roman Empire the city of Ephesus was a vibrant vibrant city it had the region's primary uh, port meaning that all of the the entire regions trade had to go through Ephesus all of the trade went through Ephesus it was there was tons of money tons of business happening in the city Ephesus was also a, a very important religious place it housed the world's largest temple and we're actually going to see and learn about it at the end of Acts chapter 19. But Ephesus held the temple of Artemis, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was just this massive place. There was actually um, a meteor. I mean, how crazy this is, all of this in Acts 19. There was a meteor that landed in this region at some point in time, like years and years and years before. And what the people did was they believed that this was a gift from the goddess Artemis. And so they carved Artemis's, like likeness out of the the meteor that landed and then surrounding it the massive temple and so all of this is in the city of Ephesus there are three scenes in our passage the gospel starts to take root it starts to move and spread throughout the city and there are three scenes here that highlight three actions that will be present and evident in a place where the gospel has taken root. When the gospel takes root in a city like Ephesus or in a church like ours, we'll see three things happen. First, we will see people who are relying on the spirit. Relying on the spirit. We, we essentially see a spiritual awakening in the city of Ephesus, and that's the first thing we see, people who are relying on the spirit. Second, you will see people who are resting in the supremacy of Jesus. So one, people who are relying on the Spirit. Two, people who are resting in the supremacy of Jesus. And finally, you will see people who are renouncing their idols. Renouncing their idols. So people who are relying on the Spirit, resting in the supremacy of Jesus, and renouncing their idols. Let's look at these three scenes one by one. First, we have verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read. You follow along with me. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we see right there at the end, what's happening is the gospel has landed in the city of Ephesus and it is spreading like wildfire. Well, these disciples that Paul first encounters in Ephesus. It's, they're really strange. Are, I mean, scholars have debated this for years and years and years. Are, were they Christians or were they not Christians? What's what's going on here? Because it's, Paul seems to indicate that they believed. And when Paul uses that language, he's usually referencing Jesus. When you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And then they're like, no, we don't know who the Spirit is, but are, are they Christians or are they not? He essentially encounters these disciples of John the Baptist who in some way— Have believed in Jesus. Now, this this reference to them as disciples of John the Baptist, it doesn't doesn't mean that they were following John the Baptist. John the Baptist has long, long died, uh, long since died. Um, This is in connection with their baptism. They had been baptized in the way that John the Baptist baptized people. It was a ritual signifying repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. So what this, this may indicate to us is that these Disciples of John the Baptist, these people who had believed in Jesus, they probably believed in Jesus as the next prophet in the line of John the Baptist. So now there was John the Baptist who was foretelling that the Messiah was going to come, and now here's Jesus and he's also going to, you know, he told us all about the Messiah who was going to come, and they didn't see Jesus himself as the Messiah. That's that's possible, and that could be why they did not receive the Holy Spirit when they believed. Well, Paul, in, in response to this, he does three things. First, he clarifies for them the role of both John the Baptist and Jesus. He says John the Baptist was basically the forerunner, the last in a long line of prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus himself, he was the Messiah. He was the one that John was pointing toward. He was the one that John was baptizing people and saying, you need to believe in the one who is to come after me, and that one was Jesus. He is the Savior, and salvation only comes through him. Second, So so Paul clarifies. Second, Paul lays hands on them. When he lays hands on them, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit, okay? So they receive the Spirit, and as soon as they receive the Spirit, the power of the Spirit was demonstrated through tongues and prophecy, and I'm about to let all of you down right now. I'm not going to talk about it very much. I'm so sorry. I don't think it's the main point here, so I'm not going to make it the main point, Maybe we can talk about that at lunch. Invite me to lunch one day this week, you know, just like Priscilla and Aquila did last, you know, last Sunday, in the, in the nice way, not in front of everybody. Um, but invite me over, and we can talk all about this stuff. Um, don't ask me to bring a dish, because I'm not my wife. If you tell me no, I won't bring something, okay? Um, but he lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. Third, he baptized them in the name of Jesus. Now, the point here is that in this baptism is not, you know, some people say, Oh, here's a contradiction, you see? Paul baptized in the name of Jesus only. And, you know, Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. You're totally missing the point if that's what you take from this. The point in emphasizing that they were baptized in the name of Jesus is that this baptism is different than the baptism they had received before. Before, they were baptized not as a response to their faith in Jesus. They were baptized as a sign of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. This time, when they were baptized... It was in response to faith in Jesus, so they were baptized in the name of Jesus. So, okay, after this encounter, Paul, he resumes his normal ministry practices. We're very familiar with it at this point. He finds a synagogue. He enters the synagogue. He preaches. The Jews hate him. They reject him. They speak evil of the way or or the the Christian uh, message, Um, and then he— turns to the Gentiles, he turns to the Greeks, he spends a significant period of time preaching from a pagan hall where many people come to faith and then the gospel spreads. Now what we're basically seeing here one important thing, I think the main thing we can draw from this is the necessity of the Holy Spirit. The necessity of the Holy Spirit when Paul encounters these people who sort of believed in Jesus you know, had had some, some kind of faith in Jesus. The reason that it was deficient was not that they didn't have every single fact straight about Jesus, although that would have been an issue. You see what Paul was most concerned about? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? The necessity of the Spirit. We're seeing that when the gospel takes root in a city or in a church, the Spirit of God must be present. I want to ask you an uncomfortable question. How much do you know about the Holy Spirit? How much do you know about the Holy Spirit? Um, I think a lot of times we can be like the disciples of John and we're asked that question and we're like, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, you know? We focus so much attention on God the Father and God the Son and then it's like, oh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's like, we're not Pentecostals, though. Like, we got to be careful talking too much about the Spirit, you know? And we get all weird about talking about the Spirit of God, so much so that if you're asked a simple question like, hey, what do you know about the Holy Spirit? You know, I hope you would say the Holy Spirit is God, you know? Um, there, there, there are some things that we can say there. Um, the Holy Spirit works in our salvation regenerates our hearts, applies the benefits of salvation to us. Honestly, let me, let me give you some, uh, a tip here. If you do not know very much about the Holy Spirit, my recommendation to you would be to find a catechism. And I'm not kidding. I'm, this isn't a condescending thing. It's not like I'm giving you an assignment I would give to a child. This is how the church has been trained throughout the centuries. Find a catechism. Look up the New City Catechism. Uh, look up the Westminster or, or you know uh, the Baptist Catechism. Look up one of these Um, The Lighthouse Catechism is a decent one Um, I prepared a few years ago Um, It's a shameless plug But find a catechism because there are really specific questions About the Spirit in some of these That give you really clear answers and it's really helpful Um, But The Spirit dwells within each of us As well Guides us as we live out the Christian life And the Spirit empowers our mission As a church And, And you may have known all of that And you may know so much more about the Holy Spirit But are you aware that salvation and our existence as a church and the mission that we've been given all of that is impossible or at least empty without the Holy Spirit there is no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit, no salvation there is no church without the Holy Spirit there is no mission, we're wasting our time here If there is no Holy Spirit, we've seen the necessity of the Spirit time and time again in the book of Acts. Luke really wants us to see this. And the first time we saw it was at the very beginning of the story in Acts chapter 1. Jesus commissioned his disciples. He's, he's He's still with it, he had not ascended yet. And he tells his disciples, he says, You need to go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Go. And I mean, that should be enough, right? Jesus died for our sins. He raised from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven. He's the supreme Lord of heaven and earth. We're going to talk about his supremacy here in a second. But the first thing that Jesus tells them after he tells them to go on mission is to wait. Wait. You can't do this yet. You can't go yet. I know I told you what to do. I I know I said that I'll be with you, but you can't do it yet. Why? Not until the Spirit comes. The Spirit is not an afterthought. The Spirit is not just, you know, some Uh, you know theological topic that we'll get to studying one day spirit is a person an eternal person third person of the trinity spirit is real and the spirit is necessary for our church only after after the spirit came did the mission of the church begin so in order for us to grow spiritually as a church in order for us to live as a church that is an accurate representation of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do we have to rely on the spirit we need the spirit to lead us we, we need the spirit if we are going to be shaped into the image of Christ and if we are going to shape others into the image of Christ now there's an alternative um, and it's, it's easy to do here because Christianity is still a positive thing we could play church we could just play games and pretend we have enough of a playbook you know we could just do the church stuff do the church things show up have have a have a nice little community here enjoy spending time together you know maybe occasionally tell other people what we believe whatever We, we could play and not really think too much about it we could look at as elders we could look at our church budget and just be like oh you know what's responsible what's a responsible thing to do here um uh, as as ministry leaders we could look at our ministries and be like, well, what's what have we done in the past? What what works? You know, we'll, we'll just keep doing and just keep doing those things until until you know, Jesus returns. Or we could seriously ask ourselves are we doing anything right now that if the spirit left, we could no longer do? What about you in your own life as you're living? Do you need the spirit to live the way that you're currently living? As a church, do we need the Spirit to do anything? And I'm not saying we change a bunch of stuff that we do. We may need to change the way that we think about the things that we do. We may need to change our mental approach to the things that we do. If we are going to get serious about being what we have been drawn together to be, and if we're going to be serious about doing what the lord has called us to do we have to not only know that there is a holy spirit we have to rely on him and the good news is we have each received the holy spirit through faith in jesus the spirit has come to us we've received the spirit and the spirit has come to draw us to the father and he has taken up residence in our hearts the bad news is that we are prone to quench the Spirit, to ignore the Spirit, to forget the Spirit, and to try to do things in our own power, by our own wisdom, and for our own glory. Now, there are three ways that we can become a church that's relying on the Spirit. Three ways, and this is really important. First, we have to think. We have to start thinking about who our church is and what our church does through the category of Spirit-dependent. We do what we do apart from the Spirit's power. And this goes really deep. Do we even need Christianity to be true for our life together as a church to matter? Have you ever thought about that? All the things that we do as a church, do we even need this to be real? Do we we need Christianity to be true for what we do as a church to matter? Would we be able to resonate with Paul when he's like, if Christ is is not raised from the dead then I've wasted my life. Can we can we resonate with him on that as a church? And this is important because if we don't need the spirit if the spirit's presence doesn't matter then Christianity might as well not be true for us. Christianity hangs by the coming of the spirit. So so we have to start thinking about our church and our lives as in the category of spirit dependence. Second, we need to start more we need to pray we need to pray in the spirit, we need to pray to the spirit, we need to ask him to work and move in our lives, in our church how often do you pray for the spirit to lead you personally or do you just pray for the lord to just magically give you wisdom do you pray specifically for the spirit to be working in your hearts and the last thing we need to do is we need to look We need to look we need to look for evidence of the spirit's power remember when the spirit descended on the 12 disciples of john the baptist here his power was evident in the signs of tongues and prophecy and i'm not saying that if you really had the spirit then you're going to be speaking in tongues you know or you're going to be prophesying if you really had the spirit no but the spirit does leave a mark The, the spirit's power is evident in his people So so look for evidence of the Spirit's power in your life and in our church. What's happening in your life or what's happening in our church that can only be explained by a work of God? And and look for it and see it and rejoice in it. Seeing the Spirit's power will lead us to rely on Him more and more. Okay, so we need to rely on the Spirit. This this is what happens when the gospel takes root in our church. So a second thing that happens we will be people who rest in the supremacy of Jesus. Now, we get to a really fun and interesting and weird story here. So, so look with me at, at verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. All right, so it's almost like Luke's saying, all right, whoo, moving on. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Well, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize but who are you? And the man in whom the evil sp- in, in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus yeah I bet um, both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it and found it came to fifty thousand pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, what we see here is that Paul is not just in Ephesus to, to preach. He's not just in Ephesus to have theological debates. Um, uh, the gospel's advance in Ephesus was accompanied by many miraculous signs of God's power as it had done in, in plenty of other places. Now, we're given this really odd example of God's power through Paul. So, we've seen the, the apostles heal people before. But this is a little bit different. Paul evidently could just be chilling and someone just like take a hanky and rub it up against his neck and then they could go and heal somebody with it. I mean, it's it's wild what's happening here and just evidence of the power of God working in and through him. Um, Then you have these magicians, these, these Jewish exorcists who we're not exactly sure who or what they are. They seem to be Jews who have Kind of brought in some pagan rituals and, and and dark arts practices and kind of blended them together um, because historically we're not too familiar with a uh, high priest by the name of Sceva so so we don't know if they like kind of created a pseudo religion here or what the case was but they had heard about Paul's gospel and they had heard about its healing powers and and they wanted. In on this, and they just you know figured that Paul probably had a particular spell you know that was working wonders for him, and they just wanted to try it out. So they heard that he was preaching in the name of Jesus, teaching in the name of Jesus, healing in the name of Jesus, and so they're like, "Hey, there's a cool phrase." We were joking uh, in in my office earlier with a few of us, and we were like, "No, we we kind of all grew up like that too. Like if you don't finish your prayer with." in Jesus' name, amen. It's not going to come true, you know? Like, it's a magic spell or something. That's essentially what these guys have done. They're like, okay, um, Jesus, uh, you know, his name is really powerful, so I'm going to give this spell or this incantation to this person to try to drive out this demon. I'm just going to add the name of Jesus at the end of it and see what happens. Um, That was not cool. There was a group of brothers, the sons of Sceva. uh, They were you know, doing this, and they they walk up to this this guy who's possessed by a demon, um, and the the Sons of Skiva, which to me sounds like a really cool band name, by the way. If any of you guys want to start a band like the Sons of Skiva, you have got to take that. Like that 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 is just it's too easy. Um, the Sons of Skiva, they go up to this man who's possessed by a demon, and they're like trying to cast out this demon by the Jesus whom Paul knows, you know, like expecting something to happen, and something happened, all right, this demon, I mean, can you imagine how, how just debilitating this would have been, you're trying to cast out a demon, and the demon just like laughs at you, the demon looks at him and says, hey, I know Jesus, and I have heard of Paul, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Are you kidding me? And then, like, attacks not just one of the sons of Sceva, but the whole band, you know? Like, the whole group, sorry. Um, The whole group is attacked by this demon-possessed man, and the, the man attacks all of them and wins over them and just knocks them down, beats them up. And then I love how Luke is like, and he left them naked and wounded. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if you left a fight and you didn't have Clothes. You're probably wounded just a little bit, you know. Um, but but th- this is what happens. Um, you know, I, I didn't expect to learn from a demon this morning. That wasn't really my plan. Um, but we're, we're probably going to have to learn from a demon here. Demons cower at the name of Jesus. And, and they cower at the name of even his servant. But they laugh at those who try to use Jesus as a means to him. They laugh at them. I mean, it's almost as if the demon is saying, look, I I don't know you, and even though you are using Jesus' name, it is clear to me that you don't know him. So, no, I don't think I will leave. I think I'm going to, to you know, attack you now. This teaches us something about the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus isn't just a source of power or wisdom or love to be added to our lives. Jesus isn't one among many people that we learn from to be better people. That's that's not why Paul was in Ephesus. That's not why we exist as a church. Paul is in Ephesus because Jesus died for the sins of the world, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and has all authority on heaven and on earth as the supreme king of the universe. That's why we exist as a church. Not because Jesus is a wonderful teacher and we just resonate with him. We do what we do as a church because of what Jesus, our king, has dictated for us. And we need to rest in that supremacy. We need to relinquish our tendencies to create a Jesus plus religion. Where we just add the bits and pieces of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he taught that we like to our lives. And we need to resist the temptation to dilute Jesus and his gospel to better fit the way that we prefer to live. Jesus is supreme. Supreme. So we must submit all of ourselves to him. Jesus is not just a part of our lives in the same way that our coworkers are or our friends or even our family members are. Jesus is not a hobby, he is not just an idea. He's not, he's not, he's not a belief. He is a real, eternal, supreme person who wants all of who we are. So we need to embrace him, and we need to open ourselves to him. And and we see something really important here. When we submit to the supremacy of Jesus, when the gospel really starts to take root in a city or in a church, and, and we see and submit to the supremacy of Jesus, it starts to show in really tangible ways because we start to change the way that we live we see it here in acts 19 you know news of of the demon's first round knockout of the sons of Skiva i mean man that's that's like a wrestlemania you know i just can see it there you got the sons of Skiva running in and you know the demon possessed man and he just you know knocks them all out i never watched wrestling i didn't have too much more to say about that um but i can see it um but after this happened, obviously, the news spread throughout the whole region, throughout all of Ephesus. I mean, you know, seven guys being stripped and beaten by a guy that they were trying to exercise. I mean, that is tea that just needs to be spilled. Like, you've got to share that. You have to. Um, but when the word of this incident spread, people were not laughing. This wasn't, a, this wasn't a joking matter. We're 2,000 years removed from this. It's a little funny to, 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 to us, maybe just to me. But it wasn't funny. In. They weren't laughing. They were shaking. They were shaking because a demon is basically saying, "I'm not doing. I'm not. I'm not leaving this man for you. I would for Jesus." Luke says that fear fell upon everyone, and then they all praised the name of Jesus. Now this is expected. The supremacy of Jesus is seen and it's felt. So people respond with fear and praise. But what's most instructive to us is what happens next. That's expected. I feel like we all respond that way, right? When we have an encounter with the Lord, when we we experience his grace in a fresh way, how do we respond? Gratitude and, and with praise, and it's immediate, and it's usually what? Temporary. Then our lives go back to normal. Here's what's most shocking about this entire passage verse 19 verse 18 also, Luke says, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices oh, oh, but even more, verse 19 and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So you have these people who are practicing dark arts and they bring all their Harry Potter books and they have a bonfire, is essentially what (laughs) happened here. But those who were practicing magic, those who were practicing these exorcisms, they rested in the supremacy of Jesus and it showed because they were now renouncing their former practices. They confessed and most likely believed in Jesus, even though we're not explicitly told, but this faith in Jesus was at work. They brought all of their dark magic books together, they burned them. And Luke really wants us to see the significance of this. They burned 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books. Do you know the modern equivalent of 50,000 pieces of silver? Seven million dollars. That's a big bonfire. They brought, they brought enough... They, brought, they burned $7 million. Why? This is the impact of Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, you realize that Jesus is greater. He is greater than the practices that you're comfortable with. He, he is greater than $7 million. He, he is greater than the fear of of what a changing culture and economy would mean because you have started following Jesus. Like the residents of Ephesus, we have each encountered the real Jesus, but we need to ask ourselves, have we also experienced real change to our lives? Are we different than we were before we met Jesus? Because the real Jesus produces real change. Now, none of us have arrived, none of us can say, you know, now that I'm Christian I'm so different now you know I I always love those stories it's like they you know this guy that you know was clearly you know um, not living as he should comes to faith in Jesus and then the next day he has a testimony it's like oh man I'm so different now and it's like well uh, good that sounds great but you know probably not we're none of us are there yet however there should exist within us a gradual however slow change in the direction of Jesus The gospel is not just a doctrine that we believe. It is power to really change. The gospel changes how we use our time, how we spend our money, how we use our talents and our skills. This is how our church becomes a beautiful yet imperfect representation of Jesus by resting in the supremacy of Jesus and submitting our whole lives to him and his ways. So I pray that we look different five years from today and I pray that we are living different lives five years from now. But, but I pray all of that is true because we are embracing Jesus' supremacy over our lives. We are continuing to open our hearts to Jesus and the Spirit. The gospel began to take root in Ephesus because people in the power of the Spirit saw and embraced the supremacy of Jesus and this is still one of the most important and necessary things for us to do days ahead embrace and rest in jesus supremacy one more thing one more thing we see here one more thing that happens when the gospel takes root in a city or in a church or in a family or an individual's heart so first uh we we rely on the spirit second we rest in in the supremacy of jesus and third and finally we renounce all idols we renounce all idols and this is where it gets hard Luke shares for us one more big event that accompanying the gospel's advance through Ephesus. Now let's, let's read this together. Um, I'm going to break it up actually but let's start in verse 21. Now after these events Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed uh, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not hands. And it's so interesting in the Greek, the way this is written, it seems that this was a catchphrase. This was a catchphrase of Paul's that was just spreading throughout Ephesus. It makes sense, though, because that's a good one. It's like, if you have to make your god, it's probably not a real god. You know, I mean, that that would definitely catch on. Um, Verse 27, And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, But also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaiuson, Aristarchus and the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Okay, we're going to stop right here. Okay. So not everyone received the supremacy of Jesus with gladness. Demetrius, though, definitely recognized the supremacy of Jesus. He understood. He understood what Paul was saying and he understood what people were doing and he was not okay with it. Demetrius was a silversmith and his main source of income Came from making these little statues of the goddess Artemis out of out of silver. Now Artemis, as we've seen, was a big deal in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis it was it was really a sight to see. People would travel from all over to see it. You can still travel to it today. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As I said, it it was you know right there in Ephesus. It was built around this meteor. It was it was a big deal. Tourists. Um, religious pilgrims. They would travel to this area. It was very, very good for business. Artemis and her temple, very good for business. Um, From Demetrius's perspective, Paul had effectively canceled Artemis, okay? He he was teaching the folly of idol worship, and this catchphrase started to spread that gods made with hands are not real gods at all. And the problem for, for Demetrius was not really with the teaching. Paul can teach whatever he wants. The problem was that many people were believing the gospel and as a result they were responding in a very specific way. Otherwise this passage makes no sense. These people were not just believing in Jesus. They were believing in Jesus and then as a result they were renouncing their idols. They were taking those little silver statues and smashing them to the ground and no longer purchasing them. Demetrius knew the gospel was spreading because he checked with his accountant and it showed on the books. It showed his bottom line was seriously affected because the gospel was spreading. So if Artemis was really good for business, Jesus was the spark of a great depression for people like Artemis, or uh, people like Demetrius in the idol-making business. This infuriates Demetrius. He gets all these similar workers together. He drags them all in. They end up going into the amphitheater, which actually is still in uh, the, the region today. It, it houses about 25,000 people. It's a massive theater. He brings all these people in. He brings, you know, the people who came with Paul in. They're making a show of them. He's getting all the people riled up. He's, you know, filling the city with, Luke tells us, confusion and chaos. They, they gathered in this amphitheater, the mob, they bring the friends in, they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they say it over and over again. And, you know, I'm sure it sounded a lot like that annoying phrase, Hal State, I had to hear over and over again last weekend, every first down, Hal State. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm, I'm still bitter, okay, about the loss last week. Um, but that's, that's what it would have been like. Um, now, what's interesting is that Paul is completely absent here. It says that he tried to go in, but his friends kept him back, and that's the last thing we see about Paul. A lot of times these incidents would end with Paul stepping up and giving a speech. And he he would give this great gospel word. Paul doesn't say anything. Um, You know, the mob is finally stopped. I'm not going to read it, but at the end it's finally stopped, not from a speech from Paul, but from the city clerk the clerk assures the mob of the greatness of artemis and also says paul hasn't blasphemed artemis so if you got a problem take him to court but otherwise calm down and so the mob calms down that's the end what do we learn here three things about idols three things and we're done number one idols are prevalent they're prevalent they're everywhere and we need that word because we don't think we are a people who worships idols we read a story like this, and we're like, that's weird. I can't relate to that. I don't worship little stone statues, little silver statues. That's so weird. I can't believe people used to live that way. We're not so primitive. We don't live in an animistic society. We don't practice voodoo. We don't have shrines in our homes on the shelves. Um, you know, We know we're not going to be tempted on the way home to stop by the idol you know, vendor and and buy buy a statue and put it on our shelves. Um, But idols are all over our city. And idols are all over our homes. And most seriously, idols are all over our hearts. What is idolatry? There isn't anything in the entire Bible that is spoken against more frequently than idolatry. It's the whole point of the Old Testament. That's why the people of God continue to be in exile. because of their idolatry what is it though i love how the new city catechism answers this question the new city catechism says idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness significance and security idolatry is reversing the new created order in christ so in the kingdom of god christ is supreme In idolatry something else is supreme Tim Keller he says it this way. Idolatry is treating anything as more important than Jesus Christ for your meaning in life, for your happiness, for your security and hope, and for your self regard. John Calvin famously wrote that the human heart is a factory of idols. Idolatry begins in the heart. Idols are usually good things that become ultimate things in our hearts idolatry happens when we look to created things to provide for us what can only be found in the creator and they are all over the place almost anything in your life can become an idol our hearts are really good at making them we make and produce idols at a pace that would make jeff bezos so jealous we are so good at creating idols our work can become an idol our spouses can become idols our children can become idols anything that we serve, anything that we're sacrificing for, anything that we spend a significant amount of time thinking about and especially anything that has our affections even if they are good things that should have our affections, can become an idol now we may not have little, you know statues on shelves, but we are not experiencing an idol shortage today, so idols are prevalent, but second, idols are powerful do you see what this idol worship has done to this man, Demetrius? And listen, Demetrius' primary idol here, did you notice it? It's not Artemis. It's money. <laughs> That's his God. Artemis is, you know, kind of blended in there, and he's concerned about the fame of Artemis' name, but not primarily. He wouldn't be concerned at all had his bottom line not been affected. That's the God he's really serving. Do you see what it caused him to do? This man, because his idol was threatened by Jesus, he got thousands of people together, started a mob, started a riot in the city of Ephesus. Now the main reason that idols like this are so powerful and dangerous is that they usually really are good things. But they are good things that are not meant to bear the weight of our worship. Keller's so helpful. Again, by the way, Tim Keller's written so much on idolatry. He has a couple like really good books I'm going to recommend later. Um, he says, the reason why it's so important to understand the sin of idolatry is that it can be growing in a part of your life for a long time and get very deep without it right away leading to clear visible and easily seen violations of God's law. And this distinction is so important because it is not idolatry to find happiness or security or significance in your career or in your money or in your spouse or in your children. It's not wrong to find happiness and, and joy and and security and significance in those things in and of themselves sink into idolatry when you're trusting in these good things to provide ultimate happiness, ultimate security and ultimate significance and here's how you can know if you're struggling with idolatry, you need to finish these statements I can't be happy unless I have blank I will only matter if I have blank I can only be at rest I can only be secure. I can only feel truly safe if I have blank. And then you can ask him in the negative too. If I lose blank, I am hopeless. If I lose blank, I am joyless. If I lose blank, I am worthless. Idols create fear in our hearts, fear that we may lose them, fear that we may not gain what we need from them. Listen to what Demetrius said. Demetrius here, he says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into desert repute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. He is scared to death. Jesus threatens our idols because Jesus won't share his throne in your heart. We're all worshiping something. And the God that you worship is the one that if you did not have it, your life would fall apart. If if you fill in those blanks with a created thing, you're committing a it can be. It doesn't seem like a problem to love our jobs or love our families or or love our roles in the church. And it's genuinely not a problem when our loves are properly ordered. When Jesus is supreme in our hearts and we don't look to created things to do what only the creator can. Now here's an example of, of how powerful idolatry is. Let's say that you've placed too much importance on or attributed too much weight to something like parenthood. So your, your role as a mom, your role as a dad. What happens when parenthood becomes an idol? Because you don't notice it at first. It creeps in, it sets in, and it dictates how you live, but you don't notice it. What happens is you start to obsess over every parenting decision, and you are filled with guilt that you cannot overcome, and you are filled with not just the normal parenting exhaustion, an exhaustion that goes to the depths of your heart where you feel like an utter failure all the time. You start to become judgmental and defensive toward other parents or other people out there who talk about your parenting. You start to view people the way that you view yourself, right? As more valuable or important if they have children. You're crippled by fear. You become far too demanding of your children because your happiness and your security and your significance depends on them. Idolatry is powerful because what happens is we take something that is good the bad news is that idols are prevalent and powerful. The good news is that through Jesus, idols can be destroyed. If you're worried that you might be trapped in idolatry, you need to see the freedom that you have in Jesus. The Ephesians, the place where Artemis' temple resided, renounced all of their idolatry because they were so captivated by who Jesus was. So many people were renouncing idols in Ephesus that it impacted the economy. And this shows us that renouncing our idols may change how we live. It may change our work schedule. It may mean that we put in fewer hours. It may change our family plans. It may change our budgets. But this is what happens when we encounter Jesus in all his supremacy. He is greater and nothing compares to him. So what idols do you need to renounce this morning? What good ultimate thing in your life. What are you serving? What are you sacrificing for? What are you loving with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What or who are you worshiping? And renounce these